You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Yeah. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see y'all today. How you doing? You awake? Very good. Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. I'm, a, I'm glad to be back with you. I've been kind of in and out different times over the last three weeks, but uh, really happy to be here worshiping with you this morning. I missed y'all. Uh, last week, I was actually out uh, preaching for another uh, a pastor in our church association who was on vacation, and so I was at uh, Crossroads Church in Round Rock, and it was really encouraging. Let me just cool like quickly say that uh, it was uh, encouraging to me as a reminder that we as a church family are part of something big that's going on that God's doing in our city. Uh, if you are a partner with Midtown, you're aware of this. We cover this in our partnership class. Quick plug for our partnership class. Uh, but um, we are a part of an association of churches, the Hill Country Bible Church Association. And what ties us together as an association is that we have the same vision and theology. Our vision is that uh, to see the day when every man, woman, and child in Austin hears the gospel from someone who loves them. And what we are doing to see that day happen, one of the main things that we're doing as an association is we plant churches. And all the churches that are part of our association were started by other churches in our association. So Crossroads was started by Hill Country Bible Church Austin. Hill Country Bible Church Austin also started uh, Hill Country Bible Church Pflugerville, which is now Parkway Church. Parkway started Midtown. So in a way you could say Crossroads is like our sister church or kind of even our aunt church, which is weird. But uh, anyways, that's where I was last week. And I tell you that for two reasons. One, as I said, just, just to remind you or perhaps fill you in on the fact that we are part of something that this is movement that God's doing in our city and it's much bigger than us. So 40 churches have been started by the Hill Country Association, which is really awesome. Two more, or perhaps three more, are getting started by the end of this year. So that's praise God for that. And so when it comes to our big prayer to see the day when Austin becomes more like heaven, to see God's kingdom come as will be done in Austin as it is in heaven, it's just we're not alone in that. We have all these churches that God's doing this great work through, not only in the Hill Country Association, but also all the other churches in Austin. We're just thankful for what God is doing. He's moving in our city. Take courage from that, friends. So that's the first reason I tell you that. The second reason I tell you this is, is way more self-serving and practical. Uh, it's because I'm going to give the sermon that I gave at Crossroads last week to y'all today. <laughs> Which means that we're not actually going to do a Psalm of Summer. So this is not a Psalm of Summer. If you're just joining us, we're in a series doing Psalms of Summer, and uh, this is something we do every summer and love it. But uh, I want to teach the passage I taught last week in Romans 8, 18 through 30, because it's just an incredibly rich passage that has been very, very helpful for me in my life, especially when I'm going through difficult and hard times. See, this passage, perhaps more than any other passage, has brought me comfort in the midst of hard times. 
And, you know, I don't know about you, but that's, that's a big deal because comfort usually is very hard to find in the midst of hard times, right? I mean, we've been there. Get the call from the doctor that it's cancer. You let go from your job or a loved one gets sick or even worse, dies. These are things that happen in our lives. What will bring you comfort in the midst of those hard times? What brings you comfort in the midst of those hard times? Well, what God says through the Apostle Paul in this passage is one of the main things that has brought me comfort in those times. And I hope that God will do for you what he's done for me through this passage. And so we're going to look at it together. Let me just read all the way through it, and then we'll dive in. Romans 8, verse 18 through 30. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All right. Like I said, this is such a rich passage, and I'm not going to get to hit on every theme that's in this passage today. But what I want to do is I just want to point out what uh, this says here about three things. One, about the way things are, and then about the way things will be, and then about how to have comfort as we wait, the way to have comfort as we wait. Okay, so that's where we're going. We'll begin with the way things are. And if you notice, uh, these verses begin by Paul painting the picture of the way things are. And uh, it's not a pretty picture. I look at verse 18. Paul refers to our present sufferings, or the ESV translation puts it, the sufferings of this present time. 
And in verse 20 and 21, Paul describes creation as being subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay, which is why he says in verse 22 that the whole creation has been groaning. It's been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly, as he says in verse 23. In short, Paul's description of the way things are is this. Everything is groaning. Everything is groaning. Now, uh, that word that, uh, for groaning, uh, it, which we, you know, in, in the Greek that we translate as groaning in English, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a strong word. It's a word that was used throughout Greek literature to describe the, the, the cry of someone who was nearing death. It's like a death moan. And that's why it's connected here in verse 22 with uh, the, a woman giving birth. For you remember, especially true in ancient times, uh, labor was uh, often at the risk of the life of of the woman giving birth. And many times they died. And so crying out in labor wasn't just because of the pain, but it was was because it was a cry of mortal agony. Like they could be dying. It's a death moan. That's the connotation of this groaning. And here Paul says, everything is groaning. That all creation is groaning. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Well, to get kind of practical, it, it means that everything is, everything is falling apart. Everything is subject to decay. Which I think, I'm not, you know, no scientist here, but I think that that's what the second law of thermodynamics is all about, right? That the whole universe itself is not able, is turning out so much energy, burning so much energy that it's not keeping up with replacing it at enough enough speed, and therefore everything is decaying. Everything is ultimately falling apart, and we are no exception to that as Verse 23 says that we groan inwardly, and as we get older, we groan outwardly as well, don't we? (laughs) I mean, this is why. Why is that? Because we ourselves are falling apart. I mean, I I spent six days in the ICU about a year ago. Many of y'all know that, and you think, why in the world? Because I had this high blood pressure, and you're like, I'm too young for that, right? And I am, and let's not do that again. But why did that happen? Well, ultimately, why did that happen? It's because our bodies are decaying. We're falling apart. This is an encouraging message. Can't you see why I wanted to give this to y'all? It's like I just made people sad at Crossroads, and now here we are. I want y'all to, no, but it gets better than this. It starts getting, it goes up from here. But before I get to the good part, right, um, it's worth pointing out that one of the implications of the fact that everything is groaning is that this is why circumstantial joy and comfort is so fleeting. 
that if we're trying to hold on to a joy and circumstances based off of relationships or situations or job or whatever, no matter what, it all will evaporate. Everything is subject to decay, my friends. And therefore, if we really want comfort and we really want joy, we have to find it in a much more stable source because the joy and comfort that's offered by this world is way too fragile. That's the way things are. Everything is groaning. But goodness, that's not the way it's always going to be which Paul also gets to in these opening verses. He tells us the way things will be. Specifically, if you just look at verse uh, 21, he says, oh, where am I? I'm so far ahead of myself. Here we go. Oh, creation itself, he says in verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, in this passage, Paul is drawing from Genesis 3, right? He's, he's uh, talking about how creation was placed under the curse of sin when humankind turned away from God. But here he's saying, there's coming a day when creation will be freed from its bondage to decay and renewed when God's children are brought to glory. The day that when we are not only brought into relationship with God, which is done now through Christ, faith in him, but when we actually, as he'll talk about in this passage, I won't get into it much, but he talks about the redemption of our bodies, that when we're face to face with God, fully glorified in his presence, not only will we be get fully human in that moment, the human that God designed us to be, but we in our glory in that moment will bring all creation with us and that God will renew everything, that he will restore everything, that every wrong will be made right, that everything broken will be fixed. It will be as the way that God always intended it to be. That's the way that things will be. Which means, friends, that in the future, this renewal, this, the, everything, creation being set free from its bondage to decay, that, that tells us, that like create the, the, the future that we have to look forward to is not playing harps in the clouds, right? And it's not this like spiritual, ethereal kind of existence in heaven. No, no. It, it, when we are brought to glory, all of creation is brought to glory. And therefore, he's, we're talking about this creation. We're talking about this place we call home. And we're, we're talking about mountains and lakes, and beaches and oceans and dogs and cats and lions and tigers and bears. We're talking about hugs and laughter and dinner around the table together. Everything as it should be. This world, but without sin. This world liberated from its bondage to decay. This world without injustice. This world without selfishness. This world with love and joy and peace. That's what we have to look forward to. That day is coming. That's the way it will be. Come, Lord Jesus.
But until that day comes, we wait. We wait. Three times in this passage, Paul mentions the word wait. He says in verse 19, creation waits. In verse 23, he says, we wait. And in verse 25, he says, we wait with patience, to which I want to say, speak for yourself, Paul, wait for patience. Is that even a thing, waiting with patience? I say that kind of half-jokingly. I hate waiting, right? Uh, the other night, uh, Chris and I went on a date, and after the uh, meal was done, we had a great time, awesome date, uh, I was ready to go. But the waitress hadn't brought the, the check yet, and so we couldn't leave. And that's one of my least favorite things of all time. Because, And I started going on about that at dinner to Krista. I was explaining to her how basically we were being held hostage, right? Like we are being held against our will, that they are not allowing us to leave when we want to leave because they haven't brought us this check. And this is criminal and it's just wrong. And I, I said a lot more than that. I just kept going on and on. And eventually she looked at me and, and said something like this. She, she said, hey, uh, Jake, God still has a lot of work to do in you, doesn't he? <laughs> she is so right. But I, I hate waiting. I hate waiting. And yet here we are, living in the present sufferings, the time of our present sufferings, experiencing creation subjected to futility, and in bondage to decay, groaning. And yet we have to wait for what will be. How do we do that? How do we do that well? How do we not just slog our way through this life dealing with these moments? Is there actually comfort to be found now? even perhaps joy to be found now. Certainly in these moments in this life, still there are moments of great beauty and joy to be experienced and we should embrace those. But again, as I said, we shouldn't build our foundation on those for comfort and joy because they're fragile. Is there actual comfort and joy to be found now that is stable to see us through this time of waiting so we can wait well? What would help us? Experience comfort as we wait. Well, in Scripture, we see that there are actually a number of things that God blesses us with that helps us even experience comfort and joy as we wait. But in this passage, Paul mentions three of them. And I want to point them out for us. Three things that will help us experience comfort as we wait. And the first thing that he says is that we will experience comfort as we wait, as we hold on to hope as we hold on to hope. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, for in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I think that he's trying to draw our attention to this word hope. You see that? Hope, 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 hope. What's, what, why? Because hope is powerful. Friends, hope Hope has the power to bring you joy and comfort in the midst of very, very difficult times. 
For example, just kind of illustrate this. Uh, this is a common pastor's illustration. I've heard it given many times, and I'm still in it myself right now. Um, but let's say that you, uh, you hired two guys to work for you, and you hired them to do this job that is t- terrible, like menial, boring, and yet laborious, back-breaking manual labor in isolation, like terrible, terrible job. But you tell one of them, hey, after you do this job, which by the way, they're, let's say they're working 12 hours a day. I mean, just horrible, right? But you say, you do this for, you do this for a year, I will give you a $5,000 bonus. But then you tell the other person, take them off in private and say, hey, if you do this job for a year, I'll give you a $5 billion bonus. $5 billion bonus. You can bet that these two guys are going to experience their identical circumstances very differently, aren't they? One of them is going to go into work, do the same job, going to do it day after day. And after about a month, he's going to be miserable, complaining, just dreading doing that every day. There's a good chance by the end of a month, he'd quit. But the second guy... The $5 billion guy, he's whistling while he works, right? And he knows this is what his future is going to look like. He has this hope. The hope overshadows, overwhelms the difficulty, the suffering, the hardships of his every single day. In this passage, Paul begins by saying this. And verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, Paul, Paul had it hard. You read through the, you read through the New Testament, you see what he went through shipwrecks and floggings and being ostracized by his own people. And I mean, just on down the list. But yet he was whistling while he worked. Because he knew, he knew that what he was experiencing wasn't even worth comparing to the future glory that awaited him. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul speaks about how we are co-heirs with Christ. As we suffer with him, we have this promise that we're co-heirs with him and we have this rich inheritance, the inheritance of Jesus. Guys, that inheritance is, and I am not exaggerating, worth far more than $5 billion. Paul knows it's coming to him in Christ. He knows the future that he has to look forward to. And so he whistles while he works. He helps him over, it helps him comfort him and even bring him joy in the midst of suffering. And friends, it can do the same for us too. But unfortunately, I have found that so few of us live with an eternal perspective. So few of us ever think about the world to come. Ever think about the way it will be. Ever think about our inheritance in Christ. Perhaps some of y'all, you read about the glory to come, and you're like, I don't even know what that really is. Guys, look into it. 
I mean, I'll tell you about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. I don't have all day, but, you know, I would, ta- I would love to talk. But I'll tell you, one thing you could do is pick up Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, best thing I've read, to help put words to the promises of Scripture of what's to come. But you, you need to know what the inheritance is so that you can hold on to the hope that we have in the midst of our present sufferings. It will bring comfort to you. It will help you wait. That's the first thing that Paul points us to. The second thing that he points us to that will help us experience comfort as we wait is if we rest in the Spirit's help. We rest in the Spirit's help. See, Paul wants us to know that as we live in this groaning world and in our groaning bodies and experience the hardships and sufferings of this present age, we are not alone. We have divine help. Then look at verse 26. He says, in the same way, which is a throwback to the hope, he says, just as hope helps us, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Now, do y'all see what this is saying? It's saying that the Holy Spirit prays for us. The Holy Spirit prays for us, that he intercedes for us, praying for us in accordance to the will of God, as verse 27 goes on to say, that personally, friends, this is such a comfort for me. Because there are moments in my life, think about in 2014, when my, my sister's baby, Annabelle, died when she was five months old or when my dad was diagnosed with cancer and then he fought it and we thought he had won and then it came back again. Or when I was in the ICU for six days last year or when I'm dealing with trying to help one of my kids through how scary that was for them and gripped with pain and Fear. In those moments of my weaknesses, I go to pray, and often I can, all I can muster is, Father, help. I know y'all have been there. Many of y'all have been there. Some of y'all are right there right now. Just help. And you're just at a loss. You don't even know what to pray for in your weakness. You're just... You just need help. You know what this is saying? This is saying not only does the Father listen to you and care for you, but the Spirit of God sees this, knows what's going on in your mind and in your heart and in your circumstances, and he doesn't just sit back to listen to you. He jumps in. He gets involved. He begins praying for you on your behalf. He intercedes for you, praying in accordance to God's will, coming along and helping you. Friends, do you see the comfort that we're told exists for us in our time of suffering and in our weakness? God involves himself. He prays, he intercedes for us. It's beautiful. It's comforting. It's true. And as you rest in that, as you know that and you rest in the Spirit's help, you will find comfort 
in your weakness. Okay. Third thing Paul points us to here that helps us experience comfort in our waiting is that he, uh, he talks to us about God's sovereign loving care. God's sovereign care. He does this by making the famous statement, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this is a very well-known verse and for very good reasons, right? I mean, this is a powerful, powerful promise of God's sovereign care for all who love him. That no matter what we do or what others do to us, no matter what we experience in this groaning world, we can know that God is working all things together into good. It's an incredible, incredibly encouraging promise. But it's also a little sobering. And real quick, I just want to point this out because we can, we can get so accustomed. And if you grew up in church, you can get so accustomed to this promise that it, you lose a little bit of the nuance that is what is actually said in here. And so just to point it out, when this says all things, that God works all things to good, he, he means all things. And, and there's this kind of common idea in some circles of Christianity that uh, if you are in Christ, that there are certain bad things that just won't happen to you. But that's not true. I wish it was. Believe me, I really do. But all things can happen to us, just like all things can happen to anybody, even when we're in Christ. And here's why. Because uh, Jesus himself, who was perfect in every way, suffered immensely. Betrayed, abused, beaten, killed. And Jesus taught that student is not above his master. Then we as his students should all know that what happened to him can happen to us. And since we live in this groaning, decaying world, most likely will happen to each of us in one way or another. All things can happen to us. Again, I know that's not encouraging. But the encouraging part is, that God can take all things, that those who love him, he promises to take all things and work them together for good. For good. Tim Keller, he he puts it this way. He says, this means that as a result of God's work, our bad things will turn out for good. As a result of God's work, our bad things will turn out for good. Now, I mentioned Keller here because, as many of y'all know, he, he was my hero. And, uh, you know, he passed away last June. Very, very sad about that. Um, but I am I'm mentioning here, him here because I'm about to rely heavily on his work on this, these next two, uh, next two verses. And I'm doing that because he was a lot smarter than I am. Here's what he says about this. He, he says, I, oh, 
in this verse, contrary to how we often think, this is not a promise that if you love God, you will have more good things happen in your life. You will not have more good things happen in your life. Nor is this saying that if you love God, then bad things really aren't that bad. Like uh, the bad things are really good things because God can work them out for good. Keller says, and I strongly agree, uh, that is not what this passage is teaching. See, friends, bad things are bad things. Bad things are things that need, that are worthy of and need to be grieved. That, that though God can work them together for good, that does not make them good. They are bad. Think of Jesus crying outside the tomb of Lazarus, weeping over the death of his friend. He knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he weeping? Why isn't he rejoicing? Look, this is an opportunity to get to show you how I can turn bad things into good things. No, no, he weeps because it's bad. It's bad. Bad things are bad. We grieve those things. But we have hope because of God's sovereign care that he can work them together for good. That's the promise. And it's a beautiful promise. Now, the question is, the big question that we should ask here is what kind of good? And God works for those who love him. He works all things together for good. What's the good? See, often we think the good, we fill in that blank with good as in good circumstances, that God's going to work this together for good and that my situation is going to get better. I didn't get into this grad school, but that means God's got a better grad school for me. This, this woman broke up with me, but that means God has a, a future wife that's someone else that's better for me. Or I didn't get this job, but that means God has a better job for me. Yes, friends, all of that may be true. <laughs> but that's not what this verse promises because that's not what the good is that's in context of Paul's thinking. This is not circumstantial good. And we know that because of this one little word between 28 and 29 that links the two verses together. It's the word for. Let me read it all together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose for. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See, the good that's in view here is not better life circumstances. It's a better life. It's a better life. See, it's the good of being conformed to the image of Jesus then the Greek word we translate as conformed here is the word morphe, from which we get our word sorry, Woo. metamorphosis. There we go. I'm a little tired. Metamorphosis. See, see, this is saying that God is going to metamorphosize us, if that's a word. He's going to change our very inner essence to be like Jesus, making us as compassionate as Jesus as loving and as joyful as Jesus. He's going to change our very essence. He's going to bring a peace to us like Jesus' 
peace. That, that's, the, that's the good that God is working all things together to produce in the lives of those who love him. And friends, verse 29, not only does it tell us that's the good, but he tells us it's going to happen. It's going to happen. He does that by using a word, the word predestined, which messes with some of us. And we're like, well, you know, that was get into a theological, you know, rabbit hole here. I'm not going to go there because the purpose of using that word in this context is just to tell us that this is fixed. God is going to do this and you can take it to the bank. You will be conformed into the image of Jesus. God will work all things together for that good, and it's going to happen. He will make you as holy and as happy and as loving as Jesus. That's the glory that's coming our way because of what Christ has done for us, and it is guaranteed. It's a good that cannot be lost. And then in verse 30, he just hammers that home by saying, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Which is interesting because that's past tense. And yet we're waiting to, for this glory to be revealed, and yet... Paul now writes about it as if it's already a done deal. And most commentators believe the reason why he does that is because it is so guaranteed that it's as if it is a done deal. You will be conformed. You will be brought to glory. And all creation will be coming to. That's what we have to look forward to. It's the hope that we have. Until then, we rest in the Spirit's care Spirit's help. And all the while we know the comfort and even the joy that God in his sovereign love for us, his sovereign care for us is bringing us about. And it's going to happen. Keller puts it this way. He says, because of this, because we can know the so uh, God's sovereign loving care, that means that we can know that our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things cannot be lost. It's fixed and the best things are yet to come. Friends, tell me that doesn't bring you some comfort as we wait. And let that come home to you. Know this. Know that you know that you know that God, your Father, cares for you, loves you. It's in his sovereign work bringing about this. There's comfort there. May it comfort you. All together, Summary here is, sorry, I got ahead of you, Jenny. The, um, we can know uh, that the way to experience comfort now as we wait is by holding on to the hope of what's to come, by resting the Spirit's help, and by knowing that as a result of God's sovereign care, our bad things will turn out for good, our good things cannot be lost, and the best are yet to come. I hope that you, you get that this morning. Now, um, there's a good chance, though, that uh, you're sitting here in the midst of really difficult suffering, and uh, this 
this isn't ringing true. That you don't feel these things. If that's, if that's where you are, I just want you to know I, I, I've been there. See, there, there's, a, there's a time when the suffering is so difficult that the idea of this hope that is to come doesn't feel helpful because it just feels distant and remote. And the help of the Spirit doesn't actually feel all that helpful because nothing seems to be tangibly changing in your life. And this idea of God's sovereign love and care for you, it feels like a lie because you don't feel like God cares for you at all. If that's where you are, friends, I just want you to know I've been there. And so before I close, let me just point you to one thing that's in this passage that has specifically helped me, that's really helped me, bring comfort to me when I've been where you might be right now. I want to invite the servers to go begin passing out the communion elements as I talk about this, but I want to invite you to try to keep your attention here. Because here's what's helped me in those moments. It's, it's this weird statement that Paul makes in verse 26 when he says about the Spirit interceding for us that he intercedes with these like wordless groans, that the Spirit groans. And see, that's weird because uh, you all remember what that word groans is all about? It, it's, this, it's this death moan. It's this death cry. And you think, okay, well, how, how does the Spirit of God, how does God know a death cry? Well, you know, right? It's, be, it's because uh, God the Son, God the Son left the comfort of heaven to come and enter into this groaning world and to experience our sufferings, to be himself subject to decay in the sense that he actually would die, that God the Son, Jesus, would actually suffer betrayal and rejection and loneliness and abuse and pain and death on the cross for us, that he on the cross would groan, that he would moan and that he would cry out as we know he did when he from the cross quotes Psalm 22 verse 1. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, that, that's the first half of Psalm 22 verse 1. Do you, do you know how that, what that Psalm goes on to say? the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Psalm 22, 1 goes on to say, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? See, on the cross, God the Son groaned with the pains of death. And the reason he did was so that through his death and his resurrection, he could bring about the end of all sin and death and groaning. And do you know what that means? It means that God has not abandoned us in our suffering. That he is able to understand 
and that he cares. And it means he knows how to help and he is willing to do anything, anything, even die, so that one day our suffering will end and we will enter into the glory of his resurrection and we will bring all of creation with us. Friends, Jesus is the best. And it's because of him that we have the hope of glory and we have the help of the Spirit. And we can have confidence that our sovereign God really does love us and care for us. And he really is working in us, working all things together to make us like Jesus. May you find comfort and joy in him this morning as we wait for the glory to come. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.